Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. to episode 28 of The Hilo, the weekly news and pop culture podcast brought to you by journalists Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Pandora's come fresh off the paddock today. <laughs> Took you one minute, whereas Dolly is still dressed for high summer in October. I love your outfit today. It's V. Jilly Cooper. V. Jilly Cooper. It's a pair of jodders. At least I'm not wearing stirrup pants. It could get more requests. Are they jodhpurs? No, they're leggings. Right. I can't say... Le- le- I'm always teased about how I say leggings. Do you say leggings? Yes. Yeah, Farley does that. So. Yeah. Uh, so do you feel refreshed after our break, Dolly? I think you do, because you are wearing a July outfit. Yeah, I have got a bit of a holiday. I've just stepped off the plane vibe. Haven't the holiday I? vibe. Um, I think it's the friendship bracelet. Uh, <laughs> how how was Hedra and the search for Leonard Cohen? Oh, it was so wonderful. I love Hedra so much. You've got to go. To the listeners, tell, tell them where Hedra is. So Hedra is a Greek island, um, a Saronic island, I think it's called. I called it Sardonic, and that's wrong. Um, <laughs> and it's this kind of beautiful bohemian time capsule because there are no cars on the island at all so it's just mules donkeys and horses so did you get a mule from the airport to your hotel no you have to go from athens it's quite a schlep actually to get on the metro to the harbour and then get a boat to hydra so it feels quite romantic you know what i'm like i just love sitting and waiting at ports for boats it made me feel like the eponymous marianne from so long marianne um Leonard Cohen fans often go there because um, in the 60s he bought a house there with some inheritance for like $1,500 and um, up in the hills. And then he lived there for five years and met this woman there called Marianne who he wrote his most famous song about and lived in this kind of um, idyll there where he said the song Bird on a Wire is about the fact that he was so sad that one day he was sitting looking out on on Hydra from his window and he saw that telephone wires were being installed and he was like I thought this would be like my 11th century getaway and you know modernity has found me but so it's but it still has that feeling of it being of kind of stepping back in time like there are notice boards everywhere with kind of town signs about there's like an open air um, cinema it's just lovely it's just so charming also, very quickly, listen to some brilliant podcasts. Yeah, because you were on your own, so I bet you did some very good consumption of media. I did. Give us a quick checklist. This, these will all be in the bio, the episode bio notes um, on today's episode, and we will put them on Twitter as well, at The Hilo Show. So I discovered the Long Form Podcast, which is an American podcast where um, they speak to non-fiction writers, particularly journalists and memoirists. Um so the really good episodes I loved of that were Lena Dunham's episode, uh, Ariel Levy. God, I love that woman. The first one that she did, I think, is the best. Um, and the second one she did it was great as well. A lot about being a staffer at The New Yorker. Um, Elizabeth Gilbert, she's excellent. She says some really good stuff about how to balance ego and soul when it comes to writing commercially. David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker. 
Uh, his is great. John Ronson's is great. Emily Nausbaum, your hero. Pandora, she's the TV critic for the New York for the New Yorker. There's a theme here. <laughs> yeah, hers is great. And Taffy Ackner, who does these really brilliant profiles for GQ and Playboy, um, hers is really good as well. I also listened to Hillary Clinton on Fresh Air. Hillary Clinton's done a long-form podcast as well. Oh, has she? Yeah, I downloaded it after you gave me a heads-up earlier today. Great, I'll listen to that. Um, her on Fresh Air is brilliant. She talks um, very uh, openly about how she feels about Trump's attitude towards women in the episode and she's very succinct um, and it's very very good I know this is really on PC I know I know I know but it is something that people do kind of keep coming back to is I do find it problematic when Hillary Clinton talks a lot about women and their place and their role and stuff when given like what she very publicly went through with Bill Clinton she has, mm. a, she has a large problem with the way that Trump kind of denigrates women in public but I just I don't know there's nothing more you know, Bill Clinton let, and how old was she? Twenty-two. He let he let a sort of twenty-two-year-old get ruined. He ruined her life. He yeah. ruined her life in a way that. But is she her husband? No, but I think I find it I find I it problematic when she problematic. publicly condemns men based on their sexual dialogue and antics. Like I'm sure, like you know, that Anthony Weiner's just gone to prison. You really? Know, this, yeah, for twenty-one months because he um, sexed a nineteen-year-old. So he's finally he's still doing it now. Yes, yeah, he's got a compulsion, obviously. What is wrong? With I agree. Him? There's something very wrong. So he's finally gone to prison. I bet, and I know this is a different scenario, but I bet that she would be vocal about that as well. Maybe she wouldn't because he was married to Huma Abendon, who obviously worked for Clinton. Mm. But I just feel like she's very vocal about these men and their kind of sexual. Um, uh, That's interesting. That is interesting. Peccadillos when yeah. her husband um, is known for something really quite rank. Um, this was a very specific incident that they hone in on Fresh Air, which is that moment at a debate where, do you remember when Trump said Hillary Clinton's gone to the loo and it's disgusting? <laughs> I don't know about that. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's extraordinary. So bizarre. But she kind of unpacks why that's so problematic for her. She's just very good on it, I think. And then also, I think the best podcast episode I listened to was Mark Maron's WTF, What the Fuck, with Barack Obama. I downloaded that. I couldn't believe it. I thought he can't have got one with Barack Obama. It's such a good interview. I'm in love with Barack Obama. Charlie's nodding furiously, so I think it must be something that people already know. It's quite famous, isn't it? That's yeah. what Dolly and I like to do, though. We like to highlight famous, <laughs> obvious things on our not-famous-obvious podcast. <laughs> it's our unique selling point, <laughs> if sponsors are listening. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's great. And there was actually one clip that I would like to insert here, Charlie, if that's OK, which is Barack Obama speaking about systemic racism and structural racism in America in a way which I found so clear and concise and useful. It is incontrovertible that race relations have improved significantly during my lifetime and yours and that opportunities have opened up and that attitudes have changed yeah that that is a fact what is also true is that the legacy of slavery jim crow discrimination in almost every institution of our lives casts a long shadow it's not just a matter of it not being polite to say nigger in public. That's not the measure of whether racism still exists or not. It's not just a matter of overt discrimination. Societies don't overnight completely erase everything that happened two to three hundred years prior. Did you do any good reading? 
Yes, I read Standard Deviation by Catherine Heaton. I loved that. God, I love that it's book. It's good, isn't it? It's I've lent really it to good. a few people. I've sent it to my mum, actually, today. It's a book about... I'm just obsessed with people's marriages and relationships and why people are attracted to who they're attracted to. I just to. like interior interior lives. So do I. All that stuff about their life in New York and the apartment, it's about a married couple and the man's ex-wife and how she comes back into their lives. It's a really great book. I loved it. And then you've got another book I can see under your iPhone that I really want to read. You'll love this book. I kept thinking of you when I was reading it. It's called Sour Heart. Where are you? I'm there. Okay, so next week? Me? Next week you can have it, of course. <laughs> it's by Jenny Zung. Um, and it's a series of short stories about young women whose families have come from China to America. Um, and it's it's a very uncomfortable to read. It's about it's written very um, viscerally. It's kind of it's about a lot about very young, sometimes child sexuality, which is difficult to read. Um, but it's very gripping. It's very truthful. And it's the first book ever to be published by Lena Dunham's book imprint, which I didn't Lenny. know. Yeah. Well, it makes sense. You know, she's always publishing really brilliant fiction on the Lenny Letter. Absolutely. And this is, um, it's had great endorsement from Miranda July, um, who Pandora and I love as well. I don't normally like short stories, but these are kind Whereas of interconnected. No, them, I know. So I'm excited and to read And it's thematic. It's, it's very, it's arresting. It's one of those books where when I went for dinner when I was on holiday, I couldn't read it over dinner. A lot of it's very vivid descriptions of poverty um, and the darkness of life. But yes, it's very, very good. Great. Tell um, me, what have you been I've doing? I've been reading, and you're going to love this based on your earlier jibe. I've been reading Mount by Jilly Cooper. <laughs> oh my God, that's quite a dolly thing to do, to dress thematically in the outfit of the book you're reading. I haven't dressed, it's just because I'm wearing a check dress, checked jacket <laughs> and a pair of stretchy black trousers. So um, tell me about Mount. Mount is, so I'd been put off it by various people despite being a massive thundering Jilly Cooper fan <laughs> but I've been told it was because she's obsessed with animals I've been told it really was too much about horses and there is quite a lot of horsey stuff right. um, but it's still Jilly Cooper at her finest I mean so on PC Rupert Campbell Black who's the recurring protagonist Yeah. I mean 10 times in the first 100 pages tells Gala um, the, the, her, his grandfather's nurse that she needs to lose a stone or two, um, you know, literally about yeah. ten times. Uh, which She's stops- just from a different time, <clears throat> isn't she? She's from a different time. I'm, I'm really enjoying Mount, although it is this enormous hardback, so it can't, I can't take it anywhere um, with me. And I also read a hilarious book called I'll Eat When I'm Dead by Barbara Borland. So it was set... I don't know when I acquired this book. I will have been sent it because I certainly won't have gone into a bookshop and bought a book called I'll Eat When I'm Dead. (laughs) Yeah, that screams of a publicist sending that to you. It's set to glossy magazine called Rage. And you'll basically love it if you liked The Devil Wears Prada or Valley of the Dolls, which was this seminal book published in 1967 by Jacqueline Suzanne. It's on my to-read shelf on Goodreads. It's it's great. You'd really like it. Um, The reviews on the back are actually the best bits because the outlets reviewing them sound like they've been made up. It sounds like a spoof. So there's Teresa Keating from the editorial section of Knitwear calling it a whip-sharp black comedy. Um, There's Olivia Mead from the publicity department of Red Lipstick. Meanwhile, Elizabeth Masters from Heels calls it brilliantly addictive, while Ilse Sheepers from Hipster calls it hilarious and sexy. I think my favourite of all, however, is from the editor of, wait for it, Ties. Ties? Just Ties. What does um, Pandora Sykes from Horse and Hound 
that make of it? Very nice Notting Hill reference. <laughs> um, uh, I thought it was really funny. It was re- it's, it's it was very digestible. I read it in. Um, there was a day last week when I was feeling really ill, and I read it in four hours. Right. I also read this brilliant piece in the Sunday Times magazine. It was an interview with um, Marlene Schiappa, who is the Secretary for Equality under um, Emmanuel Macron. And it's just such an interesting look at what it is to be a young, um, sexy woman Mm. in a very serious role in a very patriarchal country. So, for example, she's like regularly dismissed as not being that experienced. And she's like, I'm 34 I've written 15 books. Mm. I started the first and um, most kind of important working mothers network in France with 100,000 men. Like, her accomplishments are legion. Mm. And she's also had some um, brilliantly interesting ways of tackling equality. So she says, you know, my mission is vast because there are enormous inequalities between men and women in France from a 12% to 27% pay gap and the majority of domestic chores being carried out by women. Mm. The figure shows that women are equal in law but not in fact and my task is to make sure that laws are applied and that lives of women really change as a result. And it's so funny how she's been dismissed. So she is, and when I say curvy, which is a word I hate but it's an accurate description. When I say curvy, I mean, she's, I don't know, 12, 14 maybe. Um, she's a sexy woman literally every time she says something that people don't like they're like you're fat <laughs> go home again I think she's a really interesting woman and I'm I'm keen to read more on her and then something else I've been watching which is interesting and you've probably seen some op-eds about it because it's quite con- controversial is I've been watching a ITV series called Liar mm. which oh, yes. is um, which stars Joanna Froggart who you remember from Downton Dolly will I didn't watch it and um, Yoan Grufford who's as like ageless and good looking as he was in fucking 101 Dalmatians it's bizarre anyway so he Owen Grufford plays a doctor Joanne Foggett is a teacher they go on a date we don't see what happens but she says he raped her he says he didn't and I think it's it was very interesting to me because a lot of people have said which I can totally see that it's important that we tell stories from all different angles. Mm. And, you know, we shouldn't shy away from uncomfortable truths. But as someone pointed out, it is so rare for a woman to lie about rape compared with the statistic of 85,000 it, women who are raped a in the UK every year. Minority. It's an infinitesimal yeah. percentage of women that lie about rape. So to dramatise that mm. gives it an unequal weighting. Mm. Now, I do see that. It comes back to the thing of triggers and safe spaces and we shouldn't not allow this material to be made but we should have the autonomy as to whether or not we feel strong enough or in the right place of mind to engage with it Mm. I am glad they made it I do think it's interesting ultimately it is also a drama it's not a retelling of true Mm. events but I think the question is is that whether it fuels rape culture or not and obviously I haven't watched it. The really depressing thing that I slightly want to say is I don't really feel like anything could. Mm, yeah, because it's so inflamed already. Anyway, moving on. The Hilo has been extremely busy, dear listeners, having 487 meetings whilst wearing tailored jackets. Um, I'm joking, our version of business casual is much more on the side of casual. But we've got some really exciting partnerships coming up, which we can't wait to tell you about. And we also have two live events. So for the first time ever, you can come see the Hilo live in action. So the first one we're going to tell you about 
today and then the second one we're going to tell you about next week nice teaser Ooh, stay tuned <laughs> so the first one is on monday the 16th of october at a vegetarian restaurant named tibbets in mayfair the address is 12 to 14 Heddon street in london and the timings are 6 30 to 8 30 but don't worry we'll share the eventbrite link um, as it's an unwieldy one and also the full address in both episode notes and also on Twitter if in doubt just google the high low Tibbets that's T-I-B-I-T-S tickets are £25 and should you choose to eat at the restaurant afterwards and you should for Dolly and I have sampled from their food boat not buffet it it's is a food a boat a food boat and it's delicious and you get 50% off all the food if you come to the live high low show and you get a free cocktail or mocktail on arrival. The live recording will then go out as usual on Tuesday the 17th of October, so you can listen to that week's episode as usual. But for those who come to the event, you'll be able to ask your questions in the Ask the High Lotes section at the end. We're also working with a charity on this event, which we're really excited about, and 20% of the ticket price will be going towards Women for Women International. So Women for Women International helps women survivors of war rebuild their lives. Since 1993, Women for Women International has supported over 462,000 of the most socially excluded female survivors of war in places like Afghanistan, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Kosovo, Nigeria, Rwanda, the list goes on. One of the things that really drew us to the charity is their sponsor assister scheme. So Women for Women have set up a one-year program in which they help these women rebuild their lives and equip them to earn more money, regain their confidence and actively participate in their communities. When the woman joins the programme, she joins 24 other women and they form a tight support group that helps break the isolation caused by war and insecurity. She learns a specific job skills such as tailoring or bread making or poultry keeping as well as business training so she can support her family. She's also given practical information about her health, reproductive health and disease prevention. And she learns about her rights on key issues like voting, access to land, divorce, custody of her children and domestic abuse. For £22 a month, you can sponsor a woman to do the programme for a year. And we, the Hilo, just signed up this week. We find out who our sister is in four to six weeks and then we can write to her and find out how the programme's going. We're really looking forward to knowing who she is and hearing how she's progressing. We'll also keep you updated on our sister and what she's up to if both she and Women for Women International are happy for those details to be shared. We will keep you posted in due course. We'll put details in the bio of this programme. And if you'd like to sponsor a sister or you don't have the cash for that commitment, but you'd like to see how you can support the charity, you can go onto the website. It's a charity whose central message is about sisterhood. It's not just about giving money to your sister. It's about giving a vote of confidence across the world to a woman you'll never meet, but whose rights and well-being you can be deeply invested in. And that's something Pandora and I couldn't believe in more. Support for the Hilo comes from revolutionary tights brand Heist. Heist launched with the aim of turning tights from a, let's say, necessary evil into something that women should be excited to wear. Their tights, a 3D knitted design that borrows from Italian sportswear, are quite literally the most comfortable tights I've ever worn. In fact, should you be so interested, I named them unequivocal winner of my luxury tights test when I was at the Sunday Time Style. Heist tights start at £19 and are available at www.heist-studios.com. We'll put the link in our show notes. And listeners of the Hilo can get 20% off their first order using the code HILOHEIST. H I G H 
L-O-W-H-E-I-S-T. I'm also a bit obsessed with the packaging, which has tiny dancing figures of different coloured women. As a nice last note, Heist have also recently partnered with London charity Smartworks, donating tights to help women to get back into the workplace. Thank you very much to Heist. It's now time for the top line. I have a small request, Charlie. Because of the death of Tom Petty, who I loved so much, can we have a Tom Petty track as the intro music to commemorate him? Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt has pledged to create 5,000 more trainee nurse placements as Britain prepares to leave the EU. This would be the largest increase in training in the history of the NHS and comes on the back of news earlier this year that the number of EU nationals registering to be nurses in the UK has dropped by a whopping 92%. A mass shooting in Las Vegas has left 59 people dead and 527 injured at the time of recording. Stephen Paddock, aged 64, opened fire on an open-air music festival on Sunday evening. 23 guns were later found in his room. Police have not yet confirmed a reason for the attack, although they do not suspect it is terror-related. In the aftermath of the worst mass shooting in US history, questions are inevitably being asked about America's controversial gun control policies. Colin Firth has taken up Italian citizenship for family reasons, Brexit. The British actor has been married to Italian film producer and eco-age founder Livia Giolo since 1997. Slough has been named the best place to work in Britain. It is prized for its affordable housing and healthy jobs market and is also known for being the nondescript setting for the office. The Pope, who has been busy upsetting all the -the stuck-in-the-mud theologians with his progressive stance on Catholicism, has implored us to be active rather than passive in politics. Try to act personally instead of looking and criticising the work of others from the balcony, said Pope Francis. God, I love him. A new law came into play in Austria this week, dubbed the Burka ban, where those wearing a face veil in public could be charged £150. Algerian businessman Rachid Nekaz described the ban as an attack on freedom and promised to pay the fines for any women who incurred them, as he has been doing in France. Tom Petty has died at home, aged 66. The musician was found unconscious at home in California. Home Secretary Amber Rudd is calling for a higher sentence to citizens who repeatedly view terrorist content online. Currently, you can receive up to 10 years for this crime, but the Home Secretary is calling for this to be increased to 15 years. It is now illegal in France not to label images that have been photoshopped. The law was announced in May, but came into effect this week. Also this week, the largest photo agency in the world, the US-based Getty Images, announced that they will also be labelling images which have been photoshopped. Currently, there is no law in the UK that says you have to declare where images have been photoshopped. Australian wellness blogger Belle Gibson has been fined a whopping 410000 Australian dollars after she sold a cookbook and app where she claimed her diet had cured her cancer. The case has been rumbling on since 2015, when her book, The Modern Pantry, was suspected to be a ruse. In 2016, Belle confirmed that she had never had cancer. And that is the top line. I can't believe that story about that blogger, Belle Gibson. About the cancer? I know, it makes me very angry as the sister of a woman mm. that has been 
bravely and brilliantly battling breast cancer, it really fucks me off because actually you wouldn't believe how many people have said to me, oh, and have, have you tried this sort of holistic, um, has she tried this sort of holistic diet thing? And I say, yes, of course she's adjusted her diet because cancer feeds on sugar. Mm. So that means no alcohol and it means eating like she is a sort of clean eating blogger, which she is definitely not like you or I. Um you have to adjust your diet to help you get the best so possible recovery. But it doesn't cure your yeah. cancer. And I get yeah. very angry when people say things like that. It's total... Do you know what? If you are really into myth-busting of diets, really kind of pervasive on the internet these days, I think, these diets, you should follow... And I'm not just saying this because she's one of my best friends. You should follow my... One of my best friends is called Rosie Saunt. And she is a dietitian at King's College London. Uh, she did a four-year degree in dietetics. It's one of the leading um, dietetics units in the world and she also runs a project with a fellow dietitian called the rooted project Mm -hmm. and they do a lot of myth busting and rosie writes incredibly interesting long captions on facebook and on instagram about things she's discovered that are bullshit and she was reading um, an article in a hypnobirthing book about doing an alkaline diet as a pregnant woman uh, which, as she has pointed out many times before, is complete rubbish, this alkaline. Anyone out there who thinks you can change the pH of your body by doing an alkaline diet because the body is naturally acidic, you cannot change the pH of your body. It's something Rosie's written about so many times. The idea that kind of eating fruit can be bags, it's full of sugars. These are not empty sugars. Eating an apple is never something to be ashamed of. No. If I can eat a pink lady apple, which is very sweet, or a packet of Haribo, I'm going to feel less guilt about eating the apple. I'm not going to say those are both really bad. I'm going to go and eat some quinoa if you are interested in stuff like that I follow her I the Rita her. Project she's invited us actually to one of her next events Dolly so I'll oh, fill great. you in afterwards we'll yes she d- the Rita Project do some really interesting things on gut health and various other things from myth busting diet rumours to Hugh Hefner take it away Dolly ding dong the hef is dead on September 27th, Hugh Hefner died, aged 91, in his infamous Playboy mansion in L.A. Yesterday, his widow, Crystal Hefner, spoke about his death for the first time, saying, I am heartbroken, I am still in disbelief. Aside, heartbroken I understand, of course, but I did think disbelief was a bit of a stretch. <laughs> she said, he was an American hero, a pioneer, a kind and humble soul who opened up his life and home to the world. Quite literally opened up his home to the world. He changed my life. He saved my life. He made me feel loved every single day. He was a beacon to the world, a force unlike anything else. There never has and never will be another Hugh M. Hefner. Yeah, I wouldn't say it was hugely suspicious or disbelieving that he died aged 91. But also when there's that much of an age gap, I mean... You can't say you've never thought about it, have you? I mean, it's a good innings considering the amount of Viagra he crunched. There have been some brilliant pieces circulating in the aftermath of the Playboy founder's death. Two of the best are undoubtedly Gloria Steinem, going undercover as a Playboy bunny in the early 60s for the now-defunct show magazine, and Camilla Long interviewing Hef in 2011, which the Sunday Times republished in Sunday Just Gone's edition. The title is At Home with Mr Sticky Fingers. (laughs) I just want to read an excerpt from both. Here's Gloria Steinem writing for A Bunny's Tale. I dressed and went to the bunny mother's room. Cherily was at her desk, her long hair pinned back, looking about 18. She gave me a long, shocking pink form marked bunny application and a brown plastic briefcase with a miniature nude girl and the Playboy Club painted on it in orange. This is your bunny Bible, she said seriously, and I want you to promise me that you will study it all weekend. 
Then we have Camilla Long's piece, a decidedly different piece in comparison to Steinem's esoteric but largely innocent report of the Playboy Bunny Club, where you had to dye your shoes to match your outfit, buy a cake of rouge and keep your bunny tail clean and your corset stuffed in case of demerits. <laughs> so this is Camilla Long. Past girlfriends have commented on how frosty he gets if anyone keeps her pyjama bottoms on too long. Strange that someone so keen on freedom of expression should be so dogmatic, writes Camilla. Does he ever feel like he's being unreasonable? For a moment, Hefner's lizardine exterior shifts. The girl's put out, he explains, because his celebrity intoxicates them. He is iconic, not just famous, iconic. A certain type of celebrity trumps everything else, he says. Besides, and an edge creeps into his voice here, I worked hard to get here, and if there's a reward, I deserve it. Oh, that's horrible, isn't it? I loved reading those pieces. I had no idea that Hugh Hefner actually wrote a very long letter back to Gloria mm. Steinem after the expose was published. Um, in which he was actually quite gracious and he said he had no problem with the article at all. He praised her for persuading him to abolish the bunny's um, internal physical mm -hmm. and blood test. I also had no idea that the piece partially backfired after it was published because a number of women wrote into Playboy to find out how to become bunnies. Yes, I found that unexpected recruitment drive yeah. that the piece functioned as really surprising and interesting, but that's what I mean by it actually being a largely... It doesn't come across, aside from the internal exam, mm. it doesn't come across as overly hideous. No. Um, with those two pieces, I've just plucked two pieces out of a lot, and I mean a lot. What a time to be alive on Twitter. Most of the pieces focused on the fact that Hef commodified female sexuality and that Playboy and Hef himself were sticky and icky and out of date, which of course he was and it is. One that I thought was well written of this ilk, actually, it was spiky and lively, was this one on the New Statesman by a writer called Glosswitch. The Playboy vision of women is utterly joyless. It is built on fear. There are few things more puritanical than pathologising women who make their own demands regarding sex. It is Hefner's puritanism, not his liberalism, that's keeping so many of us in check today. So Playboy's been suffering for years, and it was, ironically, became too above board for those looking for sexy mm. time because they've just swerved right past Playboy and gone straight to YouPorn or RedTube and porn inevitably killed Playboy. But having read a lot of the op-eds across the websites of various magazines and papers, I did get a bit bored with the lack of nuance. Our generation got to know Playboy through the girls of the Playboy Mansion. Exactly. Sort of an anodyne reality TV series about blonde girls under cosy house arrest with small dogs that shat everywhere <laughs> and a largely doddering... <laughs> Hef walking around in and out giving them these massive allowances so yeah it was definitely problematic and it would never be made now can you imagine trying to sign that off but I think the whole issue is a lot more interesting than white man commodified women forever and ever amen Dolly what are your thoughts on the Playboy legacy I think there are a couple of things at play here in in terms of the commentary that surrounds it that as you said I think slightly quash any examination of nuance of an enterprise that was established 64 years ago. A long time. And in that time has had many different incarnations and has meant and been very different things. The first thing I think is the idea that Hugh Hefner was either A, this pioneer for sexual equality, which is incorrect, obviously, or B, this hugely evil de detrimental force to the women's movement, also incorrect. I think thinking of him in these very simplistic terms of him being either a goodie or a baddie um, doesn't make any sense. It's true, yes, that Hugh Hefner was someone who encouraged the sexual freedom of women. It's true. He was a great supporter of the pill in the early 60s. 
Um, he was in a certain moment, at a certain time, in a certain context, regarded as a sex positive and non and non-judgmental public figure, particularly when it came to gay rights. However, it is also true that he created an empire based on the sexual objectification of women, whether they wanted to be or not, which was often his his argument. It was still through a completely male gaze. The second thing is, as you mentioned, Panda, it grew to be a great many things as time went on, and that meant different things within the context of those times. A woman getting a job as basically a glorified cocktail waitress on Park Lane in the 1960s and earning money that would have given her freedom, mm. you know, maybe to move out of her parents' house, is very different to Kendra, a teenage dental nurse, being picked up by Hugh Hefner and then housed, as you said, in a cosy house arrest in a mansion as a playmate along with six other young women who he bankrolls and in return they have sex with him and filmed for an MTV show. That's two very different things. I was talking to a friend this weekend and as he said, we'll never see anything like the Playboy brand again. No. You know, we are thankfully in a different time. But Hef is still a historical figure of interest and I think what's most interesting to me is that it really isn't a one-note issue when it comes to feminism. Hef's version of feminism, he described himself as a feminist before feminism existed, <laughs> is largely a version where women are emancipated and given the pill in order to shag men. Mm. But there's no doubt that some of the Playboy bunnies found their work there, the money they were earning, for example, empowering. Many of these bunnies had few choices in the field of employment. You know, they weren't Marilyn Monroe, soon to be Hollywood A-listers, or college educated. You know, these were girls who were sort of bored working in ice cream parlours, looking for an exciting life, and who found it in Playboy, who found a community in Playboy. You know, there are... There are women who have joyful tales to tell about that. I've been Certainly. reading this quite a lot on the internet, as much as they have terrible tales to tell. I will say, though, speaking of next Marilyn Monroe's, if you want to read a true crime story, may I suggest The Death of a Playmate, which is a long-form piece of journalism from 1980 written for The Village Voice about the murder of the Playboy star Dorothy Stratton, who yeah, really was considered to be the next possible um, Marilyn Monroe. And again, we'll share that link in the bio, as it's a great read for the tube. I actually know a woman who's a family friend who was a Playboy bunny for a couple of years in the 70s when she was in her early 20s. Um, so I do have a bit of an insight into kind of the other side of this. She's a feminist. She went on to have her own business and she was very successful. She made a lot of money in something that was nothing to do with her time as a model or a Playboy bunny. Um, she had a very, very happy married family life. And she looks back at that time with great fondness. Her family situation meant that she couldn't go to university, even though that's what she really wanted to do. And she ended up there and she felt like she was in great, fun, crucially safe hands. It was a job where she made a lot of friends. She made a huge amount of money. She did it for two years and then she got out. Fine, as Gloria Steinem's piece mentions, her feet would hurt at the end of the night from wearing heels. Did they grow a permanent two sizes, like Gloria Steinem says? No. That seems a bit mad. I know. But I think particularly in the, in the 70s, that wasn't a problem that Hugh Hefner is exclusively to blame for. Like, how many no. pieces even now do we read in which women in the corporate world are told that they have to wear heels to work that's not Hugh Hefner that's a long-standing societal problem and I'm not saying that that's everyone's experience of being a playboy bunny certainly the woman I know said things did get you know much seedier in the 80s and she felt lucky to have been there in a time where it felt glamorous rather than exploitative but she went on to make a career of herself of something that was much more than just the way that she looked and I've read a lot of accounts of ex-bunnies who are her age um, who have very similar tales 
I mean, ultimately, what neither of us are saying is that this was a feminist icon. Uh, what we are saying is that you can't look through every, you can't look through the lens of modern feminism, or you'd be in a, you know, you'd be in a, you'd definitely be just in one position for sort of absolutely everything that's happened in history. I always revisit a simple but effective definition of empowerment here, which is being a Playboy bunny, and I don't mean the ones that lived with and shagged Hef. I mean the ones that modelled. Perhaps the modern day equivalent of this would be being a Victoria's Secret angel, in that it's a titillation scene through a decidedly trad male gaze. It might be empowering for the girls who are the Playboy bunnies, but for the collective cultural consciousness, for the girls growing up and seeing this as a dominant example of womanhood, it isn't that empowering. Exactly. So it comes down to the fact that for the minority it's empowering for whatever reason for the majority probably fairly disempowering yes but that being said I think it's really really easy to judge things by our modern standards when really not much matches up not Gone with the Wind or Enid Blyton or Cold Feet or Friends to give a random bouquet of cultural Mm -hmm. examples to put into perspective about how long this brand has been going for Gloria Steinem's piece was written over half a century ago and even within that piece which interestingly she says really screwed with her career for over a decade she struggled to get decent journalism that wasn't undercover smart. Anyway, Steinem is now heralded as a feminist writer, but she spends a lot of time in her piece for The Village Voice, written when she was age 28, describing girls as plump or fat in a way that feminist writers now wouldn't dream of doing for being Mm. jumped upon. Here's a question to end on. I wonder how they marked the occasion in the Mayfair Playboy Club. Oh, I wish we could have gone down. I know. Do you if think we were had proper a investigative journalists, you'd have hot-footed it back from Hydra. I know. I know. We'd and have I'll got always... all our best business casual outfits and gone undercover. And I'll always regret it. But I wonder if they had some sort of vigil. If we have any Playboy bunnies who listen, please do write in and tell us how you marked the occasion. I'd love to know. Please just write in full stop. I want to hear from you. <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. talk about what it means to be a journalist in the age of copy approval, social media and PR spin. It's not often Dolly and I get really insular and media on you, but this story had wide appeal, we thought, because it really deals with the way in which we digest celebrity content and how manufactured uh, journalism has become. So a journalist named Ginny Dugri has sparked a discussion on the issue of editorial control and censorship when she revealed to The Guardian what happened when she interviewed broadcaster Claire Balding for Saga magazine. I've never heard of Saga magazine, but it's a big seller for women over 50. Ginny claimed that she conducted an interview with Claire, which after filing her features editor described as absolutely lovely, only to be told by the Saga editor the next day, Claire and her agent have complained that there is way too much about her being gay in the interview. And I have to say I agree. Plus various other complaints that Ginny didn't call Claire lovely in the piece. She says she couldn't do that as well. She was jolly hockey sticks cheerful. Claire was not warm, but it got inserted into the piece nonetheless. This in the world of journalism is called copy approval, a practice where the interviewee and their representatives get the final say on what goes on the page. And in this case, it seems to have gone a bit mad. 
What was truly bizarre in this situation was not so much the copy approval, but that Ginny Dugree was then sent a new version of the piece in which Claire Balding had inserted some of her own new quotes about football and Ginny Dugree describes a shameless puff of her own book, passed off as if they were answers to the journalist's question. What do you make of this, Pandora? A lot of Twitter seemed pretty up in arms about this, but sadly a lot of journalists on my timeline seem to be so au fait with this kind of ridiculous pushback from interviewees. I had a few thoughts on this. I was surprised that she went to the lengths of removing her byline. I'm not immune to tweaks being made under my own byline and neither, I'm sure, are you, Dolly. And whilst it's great, it is inevitably part of the process of having an editor. I'm a bit divided on this because part of me did think, hurrah, let it be known how goddamn controlled the whole celebrity Mm. interview has become. But on the other hand, I did think, I'm not sure a big piece in The Guardian is quite the way to deal with it. Journalists Emma Gannon and Sophie Wilkinson were tweeting the high-low about this at the weekend and Emma said, personally, I think you can talk about the messy, sad state of journalism without dragging and publicly shaming specific individuals. While Sophie wrote, it did read a little strange, like, hello, have you ever worked in celebrity or high-profile journalism? Which doesn't mean this practice is okay, but it does show how widely accepted it has become for us journalists and how Ginny's actions might have been seen as a bit hysterical. Cosmo Landisman, who has been a journalist for 40 years... And was once your fellow love columnist in the Sunday Times style, let's not forget. <laughs> That's the one. Um, he says that, that he doesn't think the internet is the biggest killer of journalism, but the PR industry <laughs> is. And I see what he's saying. In my brief experience of interviewing celebrities it has always been a real battle against a representative of the subject with their own boring, wittering, (laughs) normally self-congratulating agenda. But it is. It's so boring what they want to push normally. When I interviewed a musician in a hotel room this summer, her PR sat in the next room listening to us with the door cracked open. When I interviewed an actor last month, his agent proposed I ring her so we could strategize together what my questions would be and come up with a plan you know also known as her telling me what I could and couldn't write and what they don't fucking realize is beyond it being hugely insulting and patronizing and belittling to the journalist whose job it is to capture the essence of a person which you simply can't do when you have this sort of choking editorial grip of what you can or can't write is that What they don't realise is that it will just not be good for their client to have these sort of saccharine, sickly sweet puff pieces published that read like press releases. It never reflects well on the interviewee. The interviews that people really love, the interviews that I think can really change a celebrity's career is when they're honest. It's when they swear. It's when they talk honestly about something that's annoying them or someone that's annoying them. It's when they call out bullshit in their industry. And it's when they're vulnerable or when you see, when you have a proper insight into their day-to-day life, when you get a true insight into them as a sentient being rather than a product on a shelf. So it annoys me because it, it just feels like everyone loses out in this situation. The magazine gets a completely anonymous, robotic, wishy-washy article that no one wants to read and you flick through and that no one remembers. And then no one thinks well of the interviewee either, all the crap that they're promoting. There have become celebrities, I think, as well, that really mark themselves out as either being a great interviewee or a bad one. Like, the ones that spring to mind for me are Jennifer Lawrence and Anne Hathaway are always really interesting and revelatory and transparent. And then there are ones that I can't say because one day I might be asked to interview them. (laughs) 
I've had pretty much the same experiences as you have with celebrity interviews. On more than one occasion, I've been briefed by a celebs publicist for the interview about what I can and can't mention. More often than not, I'm now asked to send questions ahead of the interview. I love nothing more than writing for a magazine who refuses to do that, as my belief is that the journalist should be able to ask whatever they want. It's up to the celebrity or interviewee what they answer. And I do mean within reason. For example, I actually get annoyed when I read an interview with a young female celebrity who's asked when they're going to get married and have children. No. It's a deeply personal that's, question. That's bad So journalism. as a woman, I would never ask that. Yeah. And also, you can't be inappropriate or rude. I mean, lots are, but yeah. you shouldn't be. I recently did a cover interview with a US celebrity and her publicist complained about quote I had included I've known her for 20 years she said she would never say that god I remember that week thankfully now that we record everything on 487 different devices I was able to procure the exact quote from my for my editor and the publicist was a bit embarrassed and we got a you know golly gosh thanks so much ladies I really never thought she'd say that and by the way I know you're going to tweet us asking for names but sadly we can't do that <laughs> or we might never work again we aren't Ginny Dugray our whistleblowing is nothing more than a pair of wet knickers gently floating in the breeze (laughs) Claire Balding interestingly has denied her involvement in the amendment and meddling of the piece and she tweeted read the saga saga Today has been an exercise in self-restraint. The editor has issued a statement clarifying that she asked for changes and I did not have copy approval. I would certainly never ask anyone to call me lovely. Gorgeous maybe, but never lovely. Hashtag saga saga. Do you know, I actually think it is highly probable that Claire Balding had little to no knowledge of what went on here. In my experience, the celebrity is more often than not quite relaxed about this stuff or has no idea of the whirlwind that's going on and it normally comes from the PR or agent. I did find this to be a bit of a non-tweet. I don't think anyone was suggesting that Claire asked the magazine to call her lovely. I think that the editor clearly felt under pressure from Claire's publicist to portray her in a super edifying Mm. light. So I'm not sure that's entirely relevant and equally not to get pedantic on semantics but it wouldn't have been Claire that would have asked for copy approval. It would have been her publicist. So that's sort of a disclaimer, which if you work in journalism, you know not to be a disclaimer and still Mm -hmm. means that all of those things could have happened. But to be honest, it's not really important if she did or didn't ask for it. It's her prerogative. What's sad is that editors are very often too scared to not give it. It's not worth their time to fight, fight, fight Mm -hmm. the inevitable pathetic fight. And it does take up so much time and effort. I'm really pleased that Ginny Dugry called this out. I think someone's got to fight back against this madness because it is a hateful reality for magazines. And publications are total slaves to the whims of talent representatives. And it's just killing the art of a good profile. And a good profile, I believe, is an art form. And it would be so sad to lose it. And people really want them. You know, even on this podcast, you think back of the interviews that we've read over the weekend in the supplements. And then we talk about like the Ed Sheeran interview in the Sunday Times Mm. magazine, when that journalist, the editor of Rolling Stone, spent the weekend with him at his house met his school friends, stayed up drinking and playing guitar with him at his kitchen table. Or the interview we mentioned today with Camilla Long with Mr Sticky Fingers. (laughs) Camilla Long is actually, I think, the princess of getting the big juicy broadsheet profile trumped only by HRH Lynn Barber. (laughs) When these portraits of cultural or political figures are truthful and three-dimensional, not only are they a snapshot of an individual, but I think they they can be a really powerful comment, an accurate comment on pop culture or collective opinion or even just where the world is at that moment. And I know I now sound like I'm writing a bloody puff piece about 
interviews but I think they can be really important relics of history and we've got to fight to preserve them there are interviews from the past that I have unearthed either online or from magazine archives that have meant and mean so much to me there's a quote from a 1968 Rolling Stone interview from the folk singer Richie Havens who I love that I have cut out and stuck on my wall and I hope future generations will feel as inspired when they look back on these snapshots of people and time and they're certainly not going to rip out a paragraph from Saga magazine in which Claire Balding talks about her brilli- how brilliant her new book is. I do think that's an unfair comparison because I'm not sure they were ever going to rip out a picture of Claire Balding in Saga magazine but I totally agree I've held on to interviews from the New Yorker or the Atlantic or the Sunday Times or the Guardian um, or you know Love magazine that have really resonated with me to remind me as a writer what good writing is. But I do worry that these are, as you say, relics from a bygone era. You know, goodbye hef, goodbye proper journalism. There's a real difference between an honest interview and a hatchet job. You have to tread the line really carefully so that you're not a tosser, but that it isn't so that it isn't selective or myopic or fey. For example, on Sunday, Jonathan Dean interviewed um, the actor Andrew Garfield for the Sunday Times Culture magazine. And I remember thinking, oh, this is exactly how a celebrity interview should be. It isn't mean or petty or full of minefields. Mm. It's thoughtful and nuanced and eagle-eyed for detail. It's an art form. Might Andrew Garfield have felt a bit uncomfortable reading some of the bits? Of course. Jonathan really hones in on the fact that Andrew is a man torn about being both a privileged Hollywood star and a man who also deeply cares about issues, which, as we know from Angelina Jolie, can be a position oft criticised. But would Andrew Garfield and his publicist have read it and thought that, you know, he's ruined their life and it was really vile and mean? Absolutely Mm. not, because it wasn't. But Jonathan also really gets to the root of the man with pathos and interest and intrigue. Celebrity copy approval is not just annoying or egotistical. We should point out there is a there, it, there is a much larger impact here. It's about someone controlling what information is in the public domain and altering it so it only paints them in a good light. And the media can't be governed like that. It's scary. Fine, this time around it wasn't. It was just Claire bloody balding wanting less focus on her sexuality and more on her work, which some may argue is damaging in itself. But I do think that's her prerogative to talk about being gay as little or as much as she would like. But it's still censorship and that could lead somewhere really, really unethical and dangerous when it comes to perhaps a different subject matter or different publications or certain public figures. I think that's a good note to end on. It's sad that she wanted less focus on her sexuality because it's great that she's very successful and publicly out. I know masses, and I mean masses, of closeted celebrities who, as a journalist, you would never dream of outing in the public forum, despite the 487 verified anecdotes that you have because of the legal implications. So it might seem repetitive in one note for Claire that the focus is on her being an older gay woman, but I actually think that's really important, particularly for a woman from that generation. Um, If you are looking for another juicy read where a journalist completely slags off the magazine they're writing for and the subject they're interviewing, may I suggest, I can't remember the name of the male journalist, but Google Comme de Garçon interview Elle magazine. And it was an interview that this male journalist did with the designer um, of Comme de Garçon, the um, kind of reticent Ray Kawakubo, and it was commissioned for USL magazine. And this man wrote the most embittered 5,000 words about what went wrong, and it went completely viral on Twitter last year. That sounds good. It's like Ginny times 100. Ginny is like a tiny little walk in a park compared to this. (laughs) I'll send it to you, Dolly. You'll very much enjoy it. 
It's now time for Ask the Hilo. Doll, do you want to read our question from this week? Hi, Dolly and Pandora. Caroline from the Seriously podcast here. Hi, Caroline. We love your podcast. I'm a big fan of the show and I wanted to submit a question for Ask the Hilo. How do I get my builders to listen to me? My partner and I are having some work done on our house and we came home one night last week to find that some windows had been replaced with frames that barely fit. We also discovered that our builder had lied to us about secured planning permission. My partner had to be at work first thing the next day, so I stayed in to confront the builder. The guy barely listened to me, kept checking his phone when I was talking, and at the end said that a lick of paint will fix it. He was dismissive, and although he didn't actually say them, I felt like the words, what would a silly girl like you know about this, were hovering on his lips the entire time. Needless to say, my partner was furious he'd behaved like that, phoned up the builder that afternoon and gave him a proper bollocking, both for the bad work and for not listening to me. The guy finally admitted the work was bad and has now redone it. So we do now have windows that fit. But I'm left with this horrible feeling about the whole thing. Why did it take my partner, a man, getting angry for the builder to do anything about this? Why couldn't he admit fault when I, a woman, explained the problem to him in a calm, polite way? I'd be fascinated to hear if you've had any similar experiences or if any of your listeners have any strategies they've developed for handling this kind of thing. I mean, it's just... an example of everyday sexism isn't Mm. it it literally reminded me randomly my mind sort of floated to um the kind of old tradition of the men retiring to the drawing room after dinner you know the men would go sit in one room and the women in the other i think it's going to take a really long time to dismantle um gender stereotypes at that grassroots level at that grassroots level and i think we do have to remember it you know it's it's great to say all of this needs to be dismantled but we do have to remember that very often in households certainly a lot of the households i know the um household labor is divided into women dealing with the more um day-to-day laundry or washing or food shop Mm. and the man dealing with kind of the structural building work Mm. I'm not saying it should be like that but I am saying that most households I would put money on it still operate like that Mm. so it's so it's it's worth remembering that before we get very up in arms and say you know this is this is appalling of course it's really annoying it's rude it's insulting it's sexist um I don't really know if there is much you can do aside from what you both did there you called him out on it um hopefully he'll have been embarrassed the uh, the thing is is that what I want to say is oh sack him find someone else to do the job but I also know I think this is Caroline's just moved to a new city it's probably a new home it will probably be very expensive and a lot of admin a lot of time they don't have to get someone new I think the best thing that you could do would be obviously your partner's bollocked him which is good what a great partners have in life Um, but I would if I were you I would talk to him as a united front the two of the both of them and say just to let you know we will only continue um, your work on this house if you have to listen to both of us if Caroline says something it holds just as much weight as when I say something if you don't listen and act accordingly to both of us we'll have to end our works together yeah, I, I think that. it's I think it's a conversation that can be had sort of briefly and straightforwardly yes. rather than a lecture on sexism because a build's just going to be like, my God, this isn't worth my time. I'm not saying your situation is like this, by the way, because I would have been very angry and would have taken to Twitter in a huff had this happened to me. But I was reading, you might have seen this, um, it was a letter that went viral to the Telegraph, I think it was, a woman called Betty or something, um, was boycotting <laughs> her local Tesco's because the female cashiers were calling her sweet sweetheart and love and a lot of the responses were you know 
dear God, Betty, there's a lot going on in the world yeah. right now. Yeah, you yeah, don't yeah. need to be bee-cotting. Bee you don't need to be both... Oh, my God. Betty-cotting. You don't need to be Betty-cotting <laughs> the female cashiers in your local Tesco's. Now, this is not the same example. I am not suggesting that you are being pedantic. I think it's fucking annoying and disrespectful and you are paying this man to do work yeah. that he not only didn't do, but then sort of refused to acknowledge when you spoke to him about it. I just think it's really important that we don't go big on the small stuff go big on the big stuff mm. and go like moderate yet unceasing yeah. on the smaller stuff he doesn't deserve your time or emotion I would just say to him we're the two of us live and pay for this house when one of us says something you will do it are we clear thank you that's what I would say and good luck with the rest of your renovations <laughs> Thank you so much to everyone who listened to episode 28 of The High Low. You can email us, thehighlowshow at gmail.com. You can also tweet us at The High Low Show. Please note that all the links from the articles, books, shows, podcasts that we have talked about in today's episode will be in the show notes. They will be very long. Just click down. But what about that article, Pandora? But what about that book, Pandora? Yeah, it annoys Dolly a lot, so do not tweet her and ask for it. Um, so have a look in the show notes. We will also put everything on Twitter. Please, if you would like to come and see the Hilo Live, our first ever live recording, you can find the Eventbrite link in the show notes on the Hilo's Twitter, my Twitter, Dolly's Twitter. Google it if in doubt. It's the first ever Hilo Live. We'd love you to come along, and the tickets are £25. It's Monday, the 16th of October, and 20% goes towards. Women for Women International Charity. We look forward to seeing some of you there. We love meeting our listeners. Looking forward to meeting some of you on the night. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.